Welcome to this podcast series supported by Longwoods Publishing. We want to bring you a series of stimulating conversations with leaders and researchers within the nursing profession and the health system in Canada. I am your host, Kathleen McMillan, a nurse with over 50 years experience in the profession who has held roles in academia, administration and policy, as well as clinical practice. What have we learned from this experience with the COVID-19 pandemic that can build resilience for any future shock on this scale? Today's topic is the health of the nursing profession in Canada, and I'm pleased to welcome Michael Gilnev, CEO of the Canadian Nurses Association. After entering healthcare work as an orderly in 1978 and intending to become a surgeon, Mike Villeneuve caught the nursing bug and has never looked back. He holds a Bachelor of Science and a Master's degree in nursing from the Bloomberg Faculty of Nursing at the University of Toronto and has practiced in all professional nursing domains over his nearly 40 years as a registered nurse. Since 2000, he has held senior nursing policy education and administration roles at the national level based in Ottawa. He has published extensively and is frequently invited to deliver presentations on nursing and health system topics around the world. He was appointed CEO of the Canadian Nurses Association in May 2017, and in recognition of the impact of his contributions to healthcare and nursing, he was inducted as a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing in 2019. A very warm welcome to you, Michael. Thanks, Kathleen. Mike, you've had an interesting history in nursing as a man, because we still are a female-dominated profession, and I think we're still hovering at somewhere around 10% of the profession is is, um, men. Uh, who has experience in nursing practice, including in a remote Indigenous community in Manitoba. And you've worked in in a number of uh, other areas of the profession that the public often doesn't think about, uh, you know, like education and, uh, and administration. And at one point, you were a policy advisor for the Federal Office of Nursing Policy for Health Canada, which no longer exists. And you fulfilled a a contract with the OECD in Paris when they were looking at global nursing, health, human resource issues. So now as the CEO of the the CNA, I'd like to just comment that the nursing profession in Canada and elsewhere is sending out distress signals post-pandemic. But the seeds of this distress existed prior to the pandemic. So what, in your opinion, did the pandemic exacerbate that we should have seen coming and we failed to recognize? Thanks, Kathleen. I've been watching it as you, watching the situation, as you said, from my vantage of being the CEO of CNA. So we do have a reach across the 13 jurisdictions and people aren't afraid to um, speak up, as you know. And so we we get good um, information on the ground, so to speak, from nurses across the country. Uh, And I'm going to choose two areas to comment on. One is about the workforce as a whole. And one is about long-term care. And the long-term care situation is fairly well-known by people now, but I, I can't not mention it. The workforce issue that, that I, I observe is that we have spent more than 20 years collecting evidence, developing fantastic, um, very strong uh, nursing science around the sorts of traits and characteristics that attract people and keep them in a job. And other... Professions have done the same, but it seems that we've had in nursing to prove over and over and over again some of the basic tenets that I think most children would understand. You know, if you treat people better, they want to hang around you more. Like some of it comes just down to that. 
so we have this long history. I think it's it's deeply gendered, uh, which impacts it. I think the sometimes we talk about male physicians, female nurses, and the difference in the dynamics. I think the real difference is that they, the physicians aren't employed in the system in the main. They have a whole different kind of degree of freedom, whereas most nurses are rigidly, hierarchically cast in, in union, unionized positions and so on, where you don't have that sort of freedom of movement. So there's all kinds of reasons, perhaps, why we haven't evolved. But to, to your direct question, we were watching ourselves age, and you know I am at the back end of the baby boom. I'm part of it mm-hmm. for those 20 years, talking about shortages coming, talking about what, what you might do about it. And then lo and behold, we find ourselves just before covid in a situation where there was very little surge capacity i mean in most in most cities a couple of bad bus crashes would have paralyzed the critical care system and i think that the public maybe quite understandably thinks that there's an army of people behind the scenes that can always be rallied and there and there ain't right there just isn't we already were working full out highest overtime of any profession, no surge capacity, and then you have a giant crisis across the country and the system then collapses. We saw what happened, particularly in critical care, you know, with 10 cities outside of hospitals we'd never seen and trying to find, God love them, you know, nine nurses from Newfoundland or someplace who who so generously left their families when you need 3,000, you know, or 4,000. So I think that it really exposed the complete lack of any surge capacity, any extra personnel. And, and then it, it exposed what we always do when you're desperate. Well, let's just put a, we'll put a practical nurse into the critical care unit and we'll put a, a support worker into here. And nothing wrong with those people, but that's not the jobs they're educated to do, nor mostly do they want to. So I think it exposed that problem in a really harsh way. And the, the second piece around long-term care, all, I guess all I'll say there, first of all, it was terrible uh, what happened. But long-term care is a sector, in my view, that is so emblematic of a completely messed up labor market. <laughs> because in a normal labor market, where there's where it's you have uneven retention and so on, you typically pay them a lot more, make the benefits better, you, you increase privilege and so on. And what I feel... Uh, what the world has now seen is what we did is make it make it very unsexy, make it not fun. The conditions are worse. The physical plant is worse. The supports are worse, and the pay is worse. And then we say, well, how come people don't want to work there? You know, and I would say, why does anybody? Why does anybody work there? Right. So it's and of course we're very very dedicated people who do. But if you want to shore up a whole sector, and now it's it's important that we do for aging in Canada. That has that thinking has to be completely tipped on its on the other side and make it as as intriguing as we see emergency rooms for people who say I want to go work there and critical care units and and. Again, Carol Estabrooks, Gail Donner, yourself, how many people have talked about this and done research on this for 20 years? No change. It's as if there is this underlying assumption that um, A, women's work doesn't really require a lot of education and uh, right. and experience and knowledge and support. So that's one part of it I think that we really haven't dealt with. I always remind people 
that um, I'm the first generation of nursing students from a hospital nursing program where we were not allowed to be counted as staff. So we're not that far away from no. from student labor doing most of the work with a few professional staff as, as supervisors and consultants. So, um, but in the meantime, the practice has become incredibly complex. So, so here we are. Uh, I think still trying to deal with you know. Uh, what do we want to pay for what we see as women's work? And then when you look at long-term care, who's doing that work is largely entry-level workers, people of color um, often, new immigrants who are trying to get into the uh, workforce. And they're caring for elderly women primarily because those are the people who are living long enough to require long-term care and not have somebody who's able to look after them. This whole issue of you know gender, I think, is one that we really cannot overlook as we go forward and how we want to uh, redesign this. So, so those are those are important points. How how do you think if we still had a federal office of nursing policy and a federal chief nurse uh, or principal nurse, how do you think that might have helped? for people to recognize these issues earlier and coordinate a national response. Because what happened is basically people started to compete between the provinces and territories for the scarce labor that was needed. Would it have been any different? I mean, you, you worked in that office. It seemed to me as an outsider that it had influence. Yes, Kathleen, it wasn't even just competition across jurisdictions. It was, we need the Red Cross and the Army. Like yeah, is the, if right. that's your staffing if that's your staffing plan, yeah, <laughs> there's a, there's a problem. I agree, um, <laughs> Kathleen. My my view on the federal <laughs> chief nurse and in, indeed on provincial and territorial chief nurses is first of all. Um, we have a excellent. We've had excellent partners over the last couple of years uh, federally in in hearing hearing about this and learning about this uh, role and what it might bring. So I want to give full credit to the fact that we've moved a, a long way in the right direction. It's been a, an enormous frustration that you do have to explain to people why a registered uh, a regulated nurse, excuse me, with a high level of education might be valuable to policy development an implementation that involves a workforce of now 448,000 people. I yeah. mean, it's a lot of people that we're paying a lot of money to in the healthcare system. And most of the people at, at a higher level, I'm speaking now about uh, deputy ministers, assistant yeah. deputy ministers and so on, fantastic people, but not nurses. No. But they're making, they're making very critical um, policy decisions that in, I think in many cases could have been better executed had they been informed by a nurse. And yeah. I think it's important, you know, I think it's often seen as it's a lobbying position to have more nurses or whatever. Right. And yeah. I, you know, I always say, you know, the, the chief nurse isn't there to lobby their own boss. The chief nurse is there or whatever title she or he has is to inform policy development because nurses understand social develop, yeah. social determinants of health and how healthcare works and so on. So, so for example, uh, in the absence of, um, that role for quite some time now, we have continued, if we talk about long-term care as one example, to move people out of hospitals who are, as you know, increasingly complex. And now they live, you know, much longer than they did a generation ago. And when I would speak with any minister, any MP 
you know, I, I would use the example that in the 60s, my grandmother's generation drove their cars in and out of the nursing home. And because people sicker than them were in a hospital in a gerontology, acute geron, geriatric unit or whatever it would be called. Well, you know, now they're, they're home care. That, they don't, was that was funded by Medicare. Right. Yes. Geriatric unit or the acute psychiatric unit. Absolutely. So now those people don't even get into retirement. They're in home care. And, you know, retirement is those other nursing home people. And nursing homes are, uh, I know just from, I'm, you know, I'm not a geriatric nurse, as you know, Kathleen, but I've certainly watched my own father's decline and, and living and dying. The complexity, I couldn't believe what goes on in there. And I thought well, they would surely have been in the hospital when I started. They all would have been in a hospital with all kinds of registered nurses, registered, licensed practical nurses, like regulated people. It's that kind of informing that I think a chief nurse should bring to the discussion. You know, now we've got a gov- governments across the country absolutely scrambling. What the hell do we do? Oh, we'll put some standards in place. Well, that's what we've been talking about for no, for no, 20 I, years. You know, as a nurse, remember when Florence Nightingale said back in the 19th century that reports were not self-executive. Exactly. And what we seem to do over and over again is have commissions and reports, but then we don't we don't seem to do anything exactly. like that information. So so, And I think a lot of it is that we lack this nursing lens at the policy level. And that also happens, you know, as somebody who was a chief, a chief nurse or principal nurse for the Ontario government at one point, um, you know, if you don't have a senior position where somebody can provide that kind of policy input, then uh, it just gets lost in the bureaucracy. And we just don't have that kind of influence uh, at this point, which which leads me to the next issue that I wanted to talk to you about, which is the demise of professional associations across the country. So many of our listeners may not be aware that as a result of government influence or, or government mandates or, or whatever, there has been an effort to focus the professional organizations and the jurisdictions on regulation. And so in many jurisdictions, these organizations were both a professional association and a regulator, and they had those two functions. So they would advocate on behalf of the profession and on on behalf of the public in terms of recipients of nursing care. And at the same time, they they did the regulatory work, which is, you know, about registering and complaints and discipline and all those things, setting standards. But now they have been directed or have been influenced to just focus on the regulatory piece. So we don't have these voices of strong nurse leaders in an organized way who are providing policy advice to government through that mechanism either. Here we are in in, uh, in Prince Edward Island. The ability to be able to put together a professional association on a volunteer basis that would have enough resources and capacity to carry out that work is a real challenge. I'm interested in your thoughts on you know what do we what do we do about this? Who does who does the government go to now when they're seeking neutral policy advice that is. Yes, in some degrees, lobbying, but it's not about wages and benefits. That's what the unions do. It's not about working conditions necessarily, unless that starts to impact um, public safety. So where do they go if they don't have a chief nurse or principal nurse, um, if they don't have a professional association? 
Well, you know, it's a very good question, Kathleen, because uh, we know that that is the case we've seen in some other countries. And where they go is they make whatever decisions they want based on often well-intended, but not very well-informed. So, you know, the the challenge we're facing in an, uh, it's an overused word, but it's probably the right one, in an unprecedented way is that one of the strengths of nursing in Canada, well, there's many, you know, strongly regulated, strongly educated, common competencies, common exam, strong professional yeah. associations, was that it, it was really around the fact that when Kathleen or Michael would go to register once a year, it was in a sense a sort of one-stop shop where you were regular, you know, someone checks that you haven't hurt anyone and won't hurt anyone and so on on the regulatory side. But there is this function that then I, I see it less as, you know, card carrying lobbying as it is um, information providing. Uh, like yeah, typically when, policy ab- absolutely. Like w- when we go with to governments, we're not asking for things for CNA. We're huh. talking about public health or the public mm-hmm. health care system or something. So um, while it, uh, I understand there's a move to make everything voluntary, you know, and I understand why people would want that, quite frankly. But then if you take away the, in a sense, at source driven membership, you leave professional nursing floating on its own. And the problem, uh, having spent a lot of time, we we spent a lot of time the last uh, couple of years researching this with with outside help. When you drop from a mandatory or at source collection of fees and membership to completely voluntary, you're lucky if you get 3% of the people signing up. So in some of our own jurisdictions, if we speak to CNA, you drop by thousands and thousands. The scale of it is devastating. And if CNA at a national level is going to struggle. You know PEI is going to struggle and Newfoundland and on and on, and on we go. So I think that the context to it, when I worked in the public policy department at CNA, there would have been 12 or 14 people perhaps. And there was a large nursing policy department with as many or more. There was 23 or so nurses working at CNA. Well, the entire policy shop now at CNA is one person and me. Uh, one nurse and me because of of budgets and you know that, that's just the reality you can't operate a cadillac with you know with a tercel budget yeah if you compare that with medicine because medicine has tied their professional associations and their collective bargaining yeah uh, you know then you have to be a member of the professional association yeah. And you're getting that uh, required membership that nursing lacks right now. And, and I think has really had significant implications. If I think for chief nursing officers or chief nurse, sorry, executives who have had to manage in this situation and the fact that there is no more, you know, ASIN, the Academy of Chief Executive Nurses has evaporated we don't have that particular body at the moment. So where do they go to create the links and the support and the assistance and the information sharing? It's, it, it's that thing about information, I think, that you really pointed out that is, is a real gap right now. And, you know, we're, we're trying to struggle with an extremely complex and potentially catastrophic human resource problem and in the absence of information. Even when you think about the data that are collected on nurses, it's not granular enough for planning. <laughs> you know, we, we just don't have the information. 
that is needed to be able to do adequate planning. So when you hear politicians say, well, we're going to hire more nurses or we're going to fund more nursing seats, we as nurses know that it's a lot more complicated than that. And that even if we were able to do that tomorrow, you wouldn't see the results of that for five or 10 years. Yeah, I agree, uh, Kathleen. And I'll leave it there. I'll I'll let you go on. Leave it there. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about academic nursing. I know that, you know, there's the Canadian Association of Schools of Nursing that really focuses in on that. But of course, it's something that as as CNA, you're aware about. Of course, during the pandemic, there's been a huge struggle on the part of academic nursing to figure out how to help nursing students complete their program and meet their learning outcomes at the same time that there's been a lot of dysfunction in the system. Do you have any thoughts as the CNA on, you know, when we're hearing politicians say we're going to increase the number of seats in in nursing about, um, is that a a plan or is that a platitude? Well, I I think that they have heard the the rumble that there's a large increase in the number of applications uh, across the country to schools of nursing, which, by the way, is pretty noble. I think out of the sort of mess of all this, people looked at that and said, I want to do what she's doing or what he's doing. Just fascinating. As the people on the inside are saying, not all of them, but enough that we worry, I can't do this anymore or I can't do it under these conditions. You know, we've heard, um, I won't pick on provinces, we heard, you know, in one province, there, there's a shortage of 4,000 nurses. And our response was, no, there isn't. They didn't disappear. They just won't work for you. <laughs> like you, <right? laughs> There's no shortage of nurses. There's a shortage of jobs they'll do. Yeah, that's a really important point, Mike, because I think I, I heard from one person that I was talking to that in the UK, when they implemented um, patient-nurse ratios... It said, if you come back to work, you will not have any more than six patients to care for on a med surge unit. 3,000 nurses came back to work. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you're absolutely right. It's not that they've you know, died or disappeared, but they're, they just will not work under the current circumstances. And some of that is work-life balance, right? Absolutely. And I think you know, to the question about, you know, when, when a government says, well, let's create we will uh, fund seats for 3,000 nurses or mm-hmm. 2,000 support workers. One of the things that comes to mind, well, there's two things. One is, quite understandably, people at that level have no understanding that the seat in the school of nursing is not the problem. It's to get a practice setting, right? You can only, how many people can you jam into Toronto General or Ottawa Civic, right, before it just overwhelms and we're not the only profession. But the bigger issue, Kathleen, when I watch it is, so in Ontario, there was an announcement. There will be, I, I can't remember, something like 3,000 PSWs and Either maybe this many. Of Ontario. Oh, support workers. Yes. Yeah, right. Healthcare aides and so on. Mm-hmm. I, as, as someone who's been in this system for a long time, I have no idea if that's the right number. Is that what you need? Well, where did, no it, where, where did the number come from? Well, there's no data, but there's no plan. No. Like, so one of the things CNA has been asking for, and, and we, we sort of, you know, the public isn't very interested in this typically, but certainly nurses and, and health workforces are, is create some structure 
pleas by which this complicated 13 jurisdictions, six time zone country can have a basic conversation about how many people do you actually need? And you know, the, 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 the most perverse maybe exa example is that we have a country rapidly going towards 20% over 65, and there's 300 geriatricians in the whole country, and you trip over pediatricians trying to find them. And, you know, there's one or two provinces that has one or none, and nursing plays out the same. So if, the, if they say we're going to find 5,000 seats, part of me says, okay, that's probably good, but I have no idea if that's what you need. What's the combination of those seats? How many should become nurse practitioners? How many should be practical? Nobody yeah, can tell you. Yeah, we Not a clue. Know. Yeah, we don't have data at the granular level of how many nurses have expertise in gerontology, for example. We've never collected that level of information. So when somebody decides they're going to open a long-term care facility in a particular area, there's no data to say whether or not you have staffing for that particular yeah, Exactly. It's yeah. just, and it's, it's a little better in hospitals, you know, because there's certain standards and so on that you can predict things a little bit. But when you step away from it to home care and then some mm -hmm. institutional long-term care, it's a free-for-all, like how, how the staffing gets decided. And, and you, we saw some of the outcomes of that, right, which is this giant disparities in very, very good outcomes in some and absolutely appalling in others and they're 20 miles apart in the same jurisdiction so there's something that's that's individual leadership and decision making and lack of data and i'll do my best with this my amount of dollars i'll get this many people uh and it's usually the minimum i'm glad when i hear we'll we'll fund more seats because i do think we we probably need more nurses but i'm not sure if we do <laughs> i just because we don't even yeah. know what's yeah. the what, what's the population demand how do you fill it well, and if, if we were to fix some of the issues around the workplace, which is, you know, unrealistic workloads, command and control management, you know, that uh, really doesn't know how to work with knowledge workers, uh, things like mandatory overtime, canceling vacation, you can't have time off for your sister's wedding, um, all these things that lead nurses to work part time so they have some control over their lives or, or, or not to work in nursing to go somewhere else. In the 50 years I've been in nursing, I've never heard so much angst and discontent. And so over the past year, probably I've moved from concern to absolutely apoplectic. <laughs> and, and yet you don't get a sense of urgency or, or an, uh, an acknowledgement that major change needs to occur if we're going to fix the problems in the workforce and more bodies is not necessarily the answer to that. No. And, and I won't go into this rabbit hole, but you know, the, the data from the bench two study uh, led by CHL net Canadian health leadership network, the data on nursing and physicians particularly caught my attention was, it was quite damning. I mean, if you look at the, I'm going to say 70% or so of those surveyed, maybe it was a little higher in nursing, had uh, held a position that was administration or management, for example. Fewer than 50% of, I think, the docs and the nurses, I should have it in front of me, had ever had a single second of leadership training, right? In, in so, 
Yeah. Com- absolutely nothing. Organizations, it's it's um, voluntary or man- it's not mandatory. Basically. Well, a lot of them um, said yeah. what I think happened to me and I thought it had changed. I got the job because I was a good clinical leader and people liked me. So you become the head nurse, the head doctor. Really shocking, Kathleen, is if, if you look at how nurses self-assessed their skill set, fewer than 25% uh, felt they had any expertise in emotional uh, intelligence, uh, ability to influence systems, change, critical thinking. I mean, if you listed the five things you want every leader to have, they didn't have it. So they're floundering. The people okay. under them are floundering. It, it's I'm really, really concerned. It's part of the reason we started the academy, right? To, to try to bring some more fulsome focus to leadership in the country because those are the people running the system we say isn't running very well it's a problem and is a huge portion of our um, taxpayer you know revenue goes to this and at the same time we're not getting the results that we should be getting and really importantly kathleen to a comment you meant earlier about people don't seem to see the urgency the group of leaders the third pillar which is People who have, who aren't clinical people who are in leadership roles, so maybe a master of health science, you know, you know what I mean? People who are very capable. They thought things were much better overall than the nurses and the doctors. And there was, there was like a chasm between their view of who's got great skills and the leadership here is good. And the nurses and the doctors like, no. That's very interesting. I remember a few years ago talking to an engineer who had talked to some people at um, NASA when the O-rings failed. Mm. And they asked people at the top what they thought the chances were of that happening. And they were like, oh, you know, like one in five million. And when they got down to the level of the engineers who actually worked on the the, uh, space shuttle, (laughs) they said, oh, probably, you know, one in 500. So there was a... A huge gap in terms of people's understanding of what the risks were. And so when you think about that that you're talking about there, that's a, that's kind of a similar thing that you've got a leadership that thinks everything's okay. And then underneath there are all of, there's this. A, a yes. And I think that, that there was a study with Carol Wong, I think, and, and uh, Heather Lashinger, maybe, maybe 15 years ago. And I remember it was nurses at the front line. I know people don't like frontline nurses at points of care and nurse ma- nurse administrators at director level and so on. And the, there was a grand Canyon between the two of them. The people who were surveyed, who were closer to care were saying, what, where do you work? Like what institution are you working in? <laughs> don't recognize this. Yeah. No, I, that's, that's very true. Well, well, given this, and I'm, I'm looking at the time here, Mike, and as much fun as it is to talk to you, um, I'm thinking that um, what do you see as the kind of three key levers for change that you would like decision makers to be entertaining right now that would make a substantial difference to helping to build resilience in the system? Um, these questions are, I always find hard, Kathleen. I think that we we have to have a sharp, sustained focus on the workforce. Yeah. Like we must have a plan. Just look at decades of data now around what we know works and what doesn't work. Look at this leadership issue I just talked about. What will be the plan to take us forward? Because we're very, very worried that we're 
soon going to face organizational lack of sustainability and maybe even regional if it's like it's it's in terms of starting to close emergency rooms and labor and delivery rooms and so on so um the the problem isn't a theory now of a theoretical issue for 10 years from now it's 2021 i think grabbing the bull uh, by the horns around the workforce i think that we i think we should do all we can to support nurses to facilitate them taking part in professional activities, whether it's, and I'm not talking about they have to join CNA. How do we get, how do we help nurses to lift their eyes even briefly off clinical care to look at, you know, that there's a world around. And I think for many nurses, and I mean this with respect, not at all a pejorative, I don't know that we even understand how our institution works where we work. We're often within our critical care directorate. We have a pretty good idea of who's in charge and how decisions get made. But when we talk to nurses across the country, you can see the light bulbs. Oh, I didn't know that nursing was talking about that with the government, or I didn't know. So how do you help nurses to um, help that light to go on? And one of the challenges we had in the in the Master of Nursing Leadership uh, program at the University of Toronto when I was teaching there was was that problem of the longstanding issue that it serves often employers well, and employers aren't terrible. I'm not trying to disparage them at all, but it serves them well if people don't talk a lot and they kind of keep their eyes down, focus on tasks, just get it done. Don't complain and we'll pay you and off you go. Plus like people like you and I, who you know, would get into trouble because we all the time. <laughs> yeah. Right. We're because we're a pain in the ass for these people, but somebody has to look up. You know, as uh, I've heard you say before, okay. one of the one of the outcomes of that is you could drop Florence Nightingale into any hospital in the country and she'd know the routine, right? It's because because we haven't evolved it very much. The third piece I would say, and I know people, some people don't like to hear this, I think we need to free up nurses in how they're regulated and deployed to deliver the care they're able to deliver. We have the best educated workforce in the history of the country. Uh, one of the best in the world, as you know, certainly better than almost any country I could measure them against. We, we ask them to in the door and now turn about half of that off and don't use the most modern technology. You can't prescribe a gravel for somebody. How could we unhamstring nurses to really deliver what they could deliver and, and, and improve access to really great care in our healthcare system? And I'm not talking about some future scope, Kathleen. I mean, the scope they have now. Let them do it. Help them understand they're actually autonomous practitioners. We still work, I think, in a lot of places where kind of a pecking order and I'm following orders and so on. No. Well, yes, of course, that's true. But you also can (laughs) because you're autonomous. And there's there's no dependent nursing functions anymore. They're interdependent or independent. Absolutely. but, but, But a lot of systems don't acknowledge that. And, and I've been saying for a long time, one of the biggest deficits in the Canadian healthcare system is the waste of nursing intellectual capital. Totally, totally. We have the potential to do an enormous amount more than we are being supported to do. And there are people that have unmet needs for care as a result. Absolutely. So those okay. are three that come to my mind today. No, and I think I think your point too about sustained attention, because what I, I you know as somebody who served on the uh, nursing strategy for Canada in 99-2000 uh, committee that came out with a number of very important um, 
you know, mitigation strategies for nursing at the time. There's always a sense on the part of governments, well, we've been there and we've done that. And we don't need to look at that again, when in fact it needed that sustained attention and oversight. So I think that's another very important point that you made. Yeah, we're a bit concerned that um, the long-term care issue, for example, maybe even the critical care issue will be, we funded some seats. Oh, yes. Problem, and, problem solved. <laughs> and the other problem, too, is that I think most governments right now think that once the pandemic's over, that everything will go back to normal. It'll be, it'll be okay, and it won't. In fact, it's been irreparably damaged. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I'd like to thank you very much again for participating in this conversation today, Michael. It's uh, always a pleasure to speak with you, and um, I hope that your messages get to the right people. Thanks to Longwoods Publishing for supporting this podcast, and please share this link with your colleagues and others in your network. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks very much, Kathleen. It was a great pleasure.